We're going to be in Matthew 26. And this is where it starts to get difficult. Um, Not in terms of teaching and understanding, but in terms of the end of the life of Jesus. Now we know the end of the story, obviously. We know He comes back. So some might say, well, big deal. Why would you get upset? The the reality is we're going to see now what Jesus went through. And what He did for us. And how far He was willing to go. The lengths of His love, which are absolutely stunning. Uh, and it's, it's not easy stuff. The next two or three weeks going through and reading about the, the betrayal and the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' pain there, his, his arrest, His false trials, even the denials of His own followers followed by that awful crucifixion in chapter 27. But it all leads up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is also a promise of the resurrection of your life and mine, all who would call upon the name of Jesus. Well, we begin in verse 1 of of Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these words, which would be the Mount of Olivet, the Olivet Discourse, all these words, what He had been teaching the last couple of chapters, we are at the end of His teaching now, and yet there is still much to be learned. When He had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. It amazes me, while Jesus was teaching on the Mount of Olives, while he was prophesying great things, things that we begin to understand and see even now in our day, at that very same time, the chief priests across the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem were meeting in the house of the chief priests and they were planning on how they might kill Jesus. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she's done a good deed to me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then... One of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Lord, as we enter into the study of your word this morning, I pray that it would be much more than a study. Lord, I find myself often inadequate to express things in the right way or to say the right thing, to speak with absolute clarity. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that You will go before me this morning and that these words would be Your words. I pray, Father, that truth would be heard and any uh, confusion, any misunderstanding, anything on my part, Father, that might take away from truth, would You just kind of silence that or block it from, from even entering into our minds? I have such peace in this, Father, that Your Holy Spirit is here among us to teach us and lead us. Not Holy Rick. (laughs) And it's not dependent on me. 
so much is on you, Lord Jesus, to get truth into our hearts. And that's what I'm praying. I pray that anything that's not would just fall away, be discarded, that the truth would stand, that we would be, Lord, testing everything we're hearing, that we'd be deep in the Word, and we would be trusting you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The human knows, which I think is a great way to start a sermon. (laughs) The human knows has been described as a huge cave, some more cavernous than others, into which is built the ability to moisten, filter, and smell the air you breathe. It is an amazing organ here, this, this nose that we have, what's inside of it, because as air passes into the nose, it enters a thick layer of mucus. And go through there. I just had to pause just to see your reaction. Because I know, is Jeff in here right now or did he take his kids out? Okay, if you ever want to watch Jeff D'Angelo gag, say mucus. (laughs) Or just when you're around him, go, you know, just any noise like that and he'll just, you know. Air passes through this layer of mucus and it reaches what's called the olfactory bulb, which is an absolutely amazing piece of handiwork. The olfactory bulb. Do you realize that inside this thing, there, every individual smell you smell is recognized? In fact, each individual smell out there in the odor, these tiny odor molecules, fit, lock and key into receptors in the olfactory bulb. Unbelievable. Like little keys of odor out there, and they go into the nose, and I know there's some you wish wouldn't fit, but they do. And you know what the smell is. Oh, the marvels of evolution. <laughs> it's things like this, even as simple as the nose. When I read about the olfactory bulb, I think it is just, it's unbelievable that people could ascribe this to chance. That the very molecules in the air are recognized in this bulb. Information is sent back into my brain which says, oh, you don't want to be smelling that. And it comes back out and I run away. It's the way this works. Or, or the information comes in and that's, it's a beautiful rose. Oh, it, it smells so sweet. And the Lord has created us marvelously. Wonderfully. And to try to ascribe that to any other process to me is, is very sad. When we could be praising the God, the God of, our, of our lives, we could be praising Him for our noses. You can't. Thank God for the sense of smell. Let me give you some olfactory factoids. Your nose can detect up to 10,000 different smells. 10,000! Dogs have a million odor cells per nostril, and each cell is a hundred times larger than a human's. Which explains why Reggie jumps off the couch and runs away when I've had a large meal. You know, it's just... <laughs> he does. I mean, it's hysterical. And I won't get totally graphic and gross with you, but you know, you're alone, you're home, you're on your own couch, there's nobody else around. <laughs> and your dog is there, and, and, and we have learned that he, you know, he loves to be right next to you, and all you have to do to get him to move off the couch is... You know, give him a smell, and he's gone. He looks at you, he's offended. You know, he can do it, he can do it all he wants. That's okay, but when you offer him an odor, he just runs away. It's amazing to me. Rick, is this where we're going this morning? Stay with me. Humans have seven primary odor detectors. Seven of them. Camphoric, musky, floral, minty, ethereal, pungent, and putrid. They're all in there. 
so that we can smell the different smells. But I think to me, one of the most amazing things about the human nose and our sense of smell is how the Lord has designed it to be connected with memory. Secondhand smoke today, secondhand smoke reminds me of Disneyland. I cannot smell secondhand smoke without feeling like I'm in line in the Peter Pan ride at four years of age. Because that's what was all around us. It was back, you know, before the days where smoking was banned from the park or from public places. And, and you'd sit there and people would just smoke up a storm with their kids and then take them on in to ride Peter Pan. And, and I remember that now. I smell smoke and I go, huh, it's a world of laughter. <laughs> Cheryl and I walked into Walgreens the other day, and they had a white shoulders display. I hadn't seen white shoulders in years. You ladies know, that's a, it's a, a perfume. And I went up and I smelled it. White shoulders was my grandmother's perfume my entire life. I smelled it, and I was in her kitchen. I could almost see her be there with her. She passed away back in 99. And it was like I was right there with her. And you all know that. You, you smell things and suddenly it takes you to places and you, re, you recall things that happened and an amazing thing. You probably also know people, two people can approach the same smell and have completely different reactions. Cheryl likes black licorice and corn nuts. I, however, do not. And if ever Cheryl just wants me to get out of the room and leave her alone, all she has to do is munch down on some black licorice. You want some, honey? No, no. Please. I literally can't stand the smell of them. It's repulsive to me. Love her. Don't love the black licorice. And the same is true in our story this morning. Because of the breaking of this vial of perfume and the odor that, that John tells us fills the house, people have very different reactions. Very different responses to what, to what happened. And, and you, what might seem like an insignificant moment, but is highly, highly significant in the Scriptures. In fact, in these friends gathered together here in this home in Bethany, there are three I want to point out this morning. Three I want you to consider and think about in terms of their reaction to what takes place in the story. Now the first one, I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit with. I'm going to tell you right now, this is some speculation I'm going to give you. It's not based in necessarily fact. It's some surmises trying to pull together some different things to understand a person that we know very little about, a man by the name of Simon the leper. Simon the leper, verse 6, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. So he's at Simon's home. He's mentioned twice in Scripture. Here in Matthew and in the parallel passage in Mark. Same story, same guy is mentioned. In both stories, he's mentioned, this house is mentioned as belonging to him, but he says nothing, he does nothing. There's no evidence that even that he was there, he may not even have been there. Why would Jesus be dining at the home of Simon the leper if Simon the leper himself wasn't there? Well... Again, this is surmised, but it's entirely possible that Simon the leper had since passed away. That it was Simon the leper's home, but as was often Jewish custom, it was inherited, it was passed along to his son and two daughters. Now, wait wait a minute, Rick. Son and two daughters. Where do you get that idea? Well, if you notice in the story, it's interesting. In John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we have the parallel to this. And Jesus and the apostles are dining that evening in this home, the home of Simon the leper, with some very familiar friends. John chapter 12, verse 2 says, They made him a supper, and Martha served. You remember Martha. 
sister to Lazarus. It says Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And we'll find out in a moment, Mary was there too. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were hanging out there at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, and and Martha is serving, which would be unusual for Martha to be serving in another man's home. Unless, in fact, it was her home. And so I'm just submitting the, the thought, the possibility, just interesting for discussion's sake, that possibly Martha and Mary and Lazarus were Simon the leper's kids. And that this was their home. Because we know Jesus went and stayed many nights during that last week. He stayed at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and spent time with them there during that last week. But there's another guess about Simon I want to make. He's called Simon the leper. Why does Matthew refer to him as Simon the leper? For one thing, it would be interesting for a man who owned a home who was a leper to have guests and have a party. That would be unusual. (laughs) If you're a leper, you're probably not even anywhere near the camp. You're outside the camp somewhere. You're outcast from the people. And yet Simon the leper's house was a place of partying and gathering. Why is that? I believe Simon the leper is a man that Jesus had healed. He had already healed him. Whether he was dead or alive, now at this time, he was a healed person. And I think that Matthew refers to him as Simon the leper in the same way that Matthew calls himself Matthew the tax collector in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. By the time Matthew wrote his gospel, he had not been a tax collector for many, many years. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, an apostle, a servant in the church. That was his focus. And yet he called himself Matthew the tax collector. Why? Well, same reason why a man who was healed of leprosy would be called Simon the leper. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says... I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Paul, don't tell us this about you. We were all so impressed with the mission work that you did and now you're telling us that you were a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Why would you do that? Same reason Simon would be called Simon the leper and Matthew would be called Matthew the tax collector. If you're taking notes, note this. Simon was a used-to-be. Simon was a used-to-be. He used to be a leper, but not anymore. A man healed by Jesus Christ, and I I personally think that may be how Mary, Martha, and Lazarus came to meet Jesus in the first place. His dad got healed by him. Well, can you prove that by Scripture, Rick? No, I can't. And I've told you that up front. This is just me kind of running off to make a point that Simon was a used-to-be. Paul said, Though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy... Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Paul says, I am the chief of the sinners. Big chief sinner. That's me. But I am a used to be, Paul said. Do you realize what a badge of honor grace truly is? Something that we can wear. We can, we can look at the old life, unashamed and unhindered by the old things, and we can say, yeah, that was me. That was me then, but look at me now. One of the reasons I think that as Christians we tend to be silent when it comes to talking to family and friends about Jesus is we're afraid they're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. I know you. I know what you've done. And so we shy away from sharing when we should jump right into that and say, yes, you do. You know exactly what I've done, and I don't do that anymore. And not out of my own power. I've been forgiven and washed by Jesus. I'm not the same person. Yes, I was a jerk to you, and I seek your forgiveness, and I love you, and I want you to know Him too. 
You don't have to fear or be afraid of anything. Please hear this. Anything in your entire past. If you are in Jesus Christ, that stuff is gone. It's history. And it's not something to to look back on and still carry the shame of it. Grace rids us of that guilt and of that shame. That was me then. I'm in Christ now. And guess what? That means you're a used to be, just like Simon. I'm a used to be. I used to be a jerk. I'm not anymore. And if you disagree with me, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> Someone might say, I used to be an angry man. Someone might say, I used to be a lonely woman. I used to be a crack addict. I used to be an alcoholic. I used to be an adulterer. I used to be lost. Not now. Not anymore. I used to be those things. But Jesus found me. You were dead, Paul says, in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in these ways in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was you. Paul says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And it's the story of every single person in Scripture saved Jesus, who were saved by Jesus. Every one of them used to be. People who have come to Christ, dead people walking, saved by Him, suddenly made alive. Paul says in Romans 5.19, As through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. I still, still struggle with that from time to time. Looking in the mirror and going, Righteous. What I want to say is, yeah, right. <laughs> And yet I'm a used to be. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul says He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God to Him. I mean, it's amazing. Praise God, we are a bunch of used to be's. And if you right now, this morning, even as we continue in this study, if you're sitting there going, I'm not a Christian and I'm not sure about Jesus and church and all that religious stuff, great, I'm not sure about church and all that religious stuff either but I am sure about Jesus and I'm sure that Jesus would say to you right here now this morning you can be a used to be all that stuff that you've been carrying around that's been dogging you for your life let it go let me forgive you let me pour my grace on you so that you like Simon no longer have to deal with the leprosy of hurt and pain and anguish and sin it's all back there you can be a used to be Brothers and sisters in Christ, isn't it good to be a used-to-be? Simon was a used-to-be. So was Lazarus, by the way. He used to be dead. (laughs) And he's sitting there at dinner with Jesus as Martha's serving. It's awesome. The next person of note in our story is Lazarus' sister, Mary. For as much as Simon was a used-to-be, Mary had a legacy. Mary had a legacy. Listen to this. Verse 7, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. At the end of verse 10, Jesus, aware of this, said, why do you bother this woman? She's done a good deed to me. She's done a good thing here. 
Now Matthew doesn't name the woman, but John does. John says in John chapter 12, verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Oh, Pastor, you missed something there. Uh, Actually, Matthew says it was on her head and John says it it was on His feet. So apparently there's a contradiction in your Bible. No, actually there's not. Jesus said that she poured this perfume on my body. So head to toe. She had a pound of this stuff. It went all over. She anointed Jesus from head to toe. And the smell, John tells us, filled the entire house. This smell that filled the house, John 12.3 tells us about that. This pure, it's called spikenard. It's an imported perfume. It's not uh, typical of Israel. It was imported from India. Very expensive and Scripture tells us this pound of stuff was worth the equivalent of about 300 denarii. What's 300 denarii? It's about a year's worth of wages. Work for a year. What do you make? 35,000, 60,000, 70,000, 100,000 bucks? How many of you are, have been able so far to save an entire year's worth of wages? This is the value of this vial of perfume that Mary broke open and poured on Jesus. At the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus told the apostles to get the people something to eat. Listen to how they responded in Mark chapter 6, verse 37. Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread to give them something to eat? 200 denarii to feed 5,000 people, they estimated, and this was worth 300 denarii. It's incredibly expensive perfume that Mary had there. It's a ridiculous sum of money. And Jewish women were historically known to love their perfume. Jewish women. (laughs) American women. And by the way, us American guys appreciate that, ladies, very much. But Jewish women would even carry the perfume around in in a little vial around their neck to take with them. It was often a a, a symbol of, of value and worth. And for Mary... It may even have been her dowry for when the right guy came along. And he did. His name was Jesus. And what Mary did here, don't miss this, was absolutely extravagant in the way she showed her love to Jesus Christ. Over the top, nothing else matters. Every other issue pales by comparison. Extravagant love is what Mary does here when she breaks this thing open. This is no small feat. This is no small statement. It is huge. She is saying, Jesus, I love you with everything that I have. I would give anything for my love for you. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Jesus said, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus said in John 15, 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And Mary, gang, was head over heels in love with Jesus. Not romantic love. That comes and goes very quickly. You know, if you've been married any amount of time, you know that, I mean, you can still have a romantic evening out, a romantic time, husbands with your wives, wives with your husbands. But, but at the beginning, you know what? Black licorice didn't bother me so much 22 years ago. You know, corn nuts, go ahead, eat them, that's cool, whatever. You know? But what Mary shows here for Jesus is not romantic love. It is deep, unconditional, agape. I would give, here, my life savings. Why does she do that? To show this 
this great love that she has. And the disciples are saying, what a waste. What a waste! Listen, gang, true love doesn't count. I mean, it doesn't add. It doesn't consider the cost of of how much you have to give away. True love doesn't ask, what's the minimum I can spend on the Lord? Is it 10%? Is that a tithe? Can I... So if I just do the 10% thing, that's what God expects of me, right? And then I'm off the hook for the other 90s, is that what you're saying? And there are those who will tithe week in and week out because that 10% is, that's, that's, that's what I'm giving. Thinking they're faithful, but the heart is just saying as long as I know how much i got to give, you know? Is it 5%? I mean, I don't want to be legalistic or anything. How about my time? How much do I have to give up for God? Sunday mornings only, is that cool? If I just show up on Sundays, does that get me in? I've got to go Wednesday too? Oh man, but Pastor Rick goes on and on on Wednesday nights. <laughs> Alright, so if I do a small group on top of that, come on! How much time do I have to give to the Lord here? You know, even as I talk about time and money and things like that, I know it reeks of guilt for some people. I know the minute I use the word tithe, there are people who go, oh, here we go. Here he goes. Okay, I'm just going to shut this out until he gets back to the grace and love part. That I like, you know. <laughs> Gang, listen. True love does not consider these things. True love could care less. True love is a ridiculous, extravagant, hilarious giving of yourself. Time, yes. Money, yes. Resources, yes. Everything and anything that you've got that you can give to the Lord, bam, you're going to do it because you love Him. Because that's what love does. Maybe that's the key to ending the debate over what we're supposed to give in our weekly giving. Is it 10%? How about we just give out of love? You know what? People would be asking, is 50% too much? Can I do that? Is that all right? 75%? How about if I just take everything in my paycheck? I'm just dropping my paycheck back there. Why would you do that? I love him. I'd say, you're nuts. And yeah. I love him that much. My point is just this. True love always costs a great amount. It always costs. It was near the end of King David's life when he made a tragic mistake. David went to do some counting and he counted his armies. He wanted to know how many men he had. He wanted to know how strong he was, how powerful. And it was a prideful move. And even Joab, the commander of the army, said, David, don't do this. Man, it's not, we don't need to count. We know we're strong. <laughs> we know we're secure. And David says, no, you count them. And in response, the Lord sent a plague. David recognized that it was his sin that did it. And so the prophet Gad is sent to David. This is in 1 Chronicles 21. Let's read this to you. Verse 18 says, The angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so David went up at the word of Gad the prophet, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Ornan was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, No, take it for yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. And I love that. The heart of Ornan here is, I will give you everything. Just take it. It's yours. It's, it's the Lord's. It belongs to him. Watch what David does. King David said to Ornan, No. 
I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering, listen, which costs me nothing. See, there's the heart of David. I'm not going to offer up something that didn't cost me. How, how much did it cost you to be here this morning? Was it tough getting out of bed, rolling out? You know, was, that, was that a little difficult? Did, did you have to pay for gas to drive here wherever you came from? What was the cost of actually showing up today to worship Jesus? How much is your Christian life costing you? What's the expense of your discipleship right now? What price are you willing to pay? <laughs> Considering what we did before, that you're a used-to-be. And I'm talking now to Christians. You're a used-to-be. And now you are into eternity with Jesus. How much is that worth to you? And what are you willing to pay? How much do you love Him? Mary's love is absolutely evident. It cost her a great deal. Of course, Mary was the one who sat at Jesus' feet while her sister was in the kitchen. You remember that story. Martha's in the kitchen and she's the one always asking, what can I do for God? What can I do? She was a doer. Not a bad thing. What can I do for God? Mary was always asking, what can I learn from God? She's the one sitting at the feet, listening to Jesus. And when the time came for Mary to act, she had learned to do it extravagantly because she loved Him so much. I think Mary may have learned something else as well. She may not have fully understood it, but she'd been listening and she may have had a sense that Jesus was about to die. Jesus made this point in verse 12. He said, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Did Mary really know that? Maybe? I don't know. I mean, you'll have to ask her. Jesus certainly had said it enough times before, back in Matthew 12.40. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, clearly indicating His burial. Matthew 16.21 tells us after the Caesarea Philippi incident where Peter proclaimed his faith and confessed Jesus to be the Son of God, it tells us from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus didn't leave it to chance. It wasn't guesswork. There was nobody there who should have been surprised. Matthew 17.22 While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. So the real surprise to me in Scripture is that any of the apostles or disciples of Jesus were surprised when it happened. This is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen, so that you can be ready when it happens. And it surprises me today that there are going to be people surprised when Jesus comes again. Because he has said, this is going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. This is what it looks like. Be ready, as we've been talking a lot about recently. But whether Mary understood or not, whether she knew what she was doing was for his burial or not, the real issue is this. Verse 13. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Guess what? It just happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, This woman will be remembered for what she did, and we just remembered Mary. For the sacrifice, for the extravagant love, for the passion that she had for Jesus, we have just done what Jesus said would happen. She will be forever connected forever bound to the gospel story itself as the one who anointed Jesus for his death. 
Why? Why would Jesus take this one little incident and tie this one woman to his death, to the gospel story? Why would he do that? Because Mary's actions are a miniature version of what Jesus was about to do himself, and that was show extravagant love. That the body would be broken, and it wouldn't be perfume that flowed out, it'd be blood. As Jesus proved absolutely his desire to love and save every one of us. That's amazing to me. Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. What is that worth to you? How much would you give for a gift like that? Mary loved Jesus, considered Him worthy of all that she had, and that is her fragrant legacy. Kind of like a sweet memory triggered by a sweet perfume every time this story is told. Mary is remembered. Mary is honored even here on North Whidbey Island, halfway around the world from Bethany. There's one last person in the story whose legacy is quite different. The third character I want you to pay attention to in this story is Judas himself. We're told in verse 8 the disciples were indignant when they saw this and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Matthew is actually somewhat kind in his telling of the story. You need to realize, if it was the disciples who said this, the ringleader was Judas. The one who vocalized this, if the others agreed, the one who vocalized it was Judas himself. John chapter 12, verse 4. says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Yeah, Judas, that's what you would have done with it. Oh, Rick, you're being kind of hard on Judas. Well, John's the one who wrote following that. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was being put into it. Simon was a used-to-be. Mary has a legacy. Judas lives in infamy. Judas lives in infamy from that point forward and forevermore. Judas is always Judas the one who betrayed him. Judas the betrayer. Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus Christ. And here is where I believe we see it kick into high gear. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and and he said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. This is the point I believe Judas said, I've had it. I've had enough. Of this giving and compassion and this wasteful stuff that I see all the time. I'm done with this guy. This time, Jesus, you went too far. Because what Matthew tells us is at this point, after this moment in the house of Bethany, Judas immediately goes in to talk to the chief priests. I will betray this man. What was it Jesus said that would touch off such a nerve in Judas? In John's telling of it... (laughs) Jesus goes right at Judas. Jesus takes it straight to him and says, Look, you don't understand. You always have the poor with you. You don't always have me with you. And what she did was good and right. She anointed me, she prepared me for burial, and she will be honored from this point forward. And Judas was offended. You know, we love strong preaching just as long as it doesn't attack our own personal conscience. As long as the preaching is aimed at somebody else. Now, 
I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I heard several amens last week as I condemned drunkenness among Christians. And I wonder, and this is just me, but I wonder how many of those amens came from those who were drunk the night before versus those who have never had a drink in their lives. A whole lot easier to say, yeah, preach it, Rick. Go after the drunkenness. Yeah, that's a sin. But when it's focused on a sin that you struggle with, how quickly are you ready to stand up and say, Amen. Amen. I blew it last night. And that was stupid of me. God forgive me. Amen. It's easy to hear strong sermons that don't nail us. A new pastor came into a church. You may have heard the story. Hired on this little church in this country area and, and begins preaching first Sunday preachers on the evils of alcohol and these two little women come up to him afterwards and they say, Great preaching, Pastor. That was wonderful. Yeah. The next week he preaches on the evils of tobacco and they come up, That's just wonderful preaching, Pastor. Keep it up. The next week he talked about gambling and again, Oh, you're such an anointed man of God. Keep it up. And the next week he talked about tithing and they came up and said, Now you've left preaching for meddling. <laughs> as far as Judas was concerned gang as long as he wasn't challenged he could continue on with Jesus one hand raised in praise the other one stuck deep in the offering bag which raises this point why in the world would Jesus put Judas in charge of the money did he, was he just a poor judge of character our Lord Jesus or did he know exactly what was going on the whole time I'm sure he knew of course he knew And every time Judas was stealing out of the bag, Jesus was aware of it. Why didn't he call him on it and embarrass him? Because Jesus is a man of grace. And because Jesus, all the way down, and you see this in John, it's an absolutely remarkable moment. At the Last Supper, as the devil has put it into Judas' mind to betray Jesus, to go right then and do it. In fact, John 13.2 says, During the Supper, the devil put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus still after that, knowing that was going on in Judas' heart, Dipped the morsel and handed it to Judas. You know, at that point of the Passover supper, to dip the morsel and hand it to someone, that was something you did for your closest friend. That was something that you did to say to someone, you matter to me. You are precious to me. You're a special person in my life. Just after that, Jesus said to Judas, what you've got to do, you better do quickly. And Judas left. And it was such a subtle moment, it was lost on the apostles. They thought Judas was leaving to go take care of some business that was pre-planned with Jesus. They had no idea it was all about the betrayal. Jesus knew. To the last second, Jesus was saying to Judas, Will you be my friend? Will you be my friend, Judas? You don't have to do this, man. Well, Well, Rick, John said during the supper, the devil put it into Judas' heart. And there are commentators out there who don't think Judas should be held accountable for his actions. He was just playing a role. He was just doing, you know, what he was planned out to do. Listen to this, gang. Judas' heart was simply tuned into Satan's frequency and had been for a long time. Satan can't make you do anything that your heart is not bent to do. In the Old Testament, you may have had problems with this or struggled with this, where it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh against the people. Guess what? Pharaoh's heart was already headed that direction. And so the Lord said... I'm going to honor where your heart is. And that's what happened with Judas. He was already in the, in the mentality of betrayal. And so Jesus 
honored that and said what you've got to do, do quickly. Judah's life is the saddest story of betrayal and loss in all of history. He is the exact human opposite of Mary. Mary in the story who would give extravagantly, who gave her absolute best to Jesus. Judas, on the other hand, is the one who calls it waste. It is wasteful spending. What a waste this is! It would just be a day or so later in John 17 where Jesus was praying and He would say these words, While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name which You've given Me. I guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition. Jesus was 11 for 12 in saving the apostles. Not one of them perished, he prayed, but the son of perdition. Interesting, the word perdition is apolia in the Greek, apolia, which means waste. It's the same word that Judas uses when he says, why this waste? Jesus would later refer to him as the son of waste. What was the difference between Mary and Judas? We won't consider Simon the leper. We don't know anything else about him, but we know so much about these two. What was the difference? Both followed Jesus for three years, at least. Both heard the same teachings. Both saw the same miracles. Both felt the same outpouring of compassionate love coming from the heart of Christ. But the more Mary was with Jesus, the more she smelled sweet life. That was the odor that connected in her olfactory bulb was sweetness. Life. The more Judas was around Jesus, the more he smelled stale death. Judas was tuned into that. He was. Getting down to that last week of Jesus, I'm absolutely convinced Judas saw the death coming. Jesus, if you keep teaching like this, you're going to be in trouble. If you keep attacking the chief priest, you're going to be in trouble. This is not good. We're all going to end up dead. And so what what does Judas do? He does the same same thing that Josephus did, by the way. I mentioned recently that Josephus was a betrayer. He was the Jewish man who betrayed his people to the Romans to save his own neck. Judas was concerned about, at this point, saving his own neck. There's a verse that connects to this very powerfully. 2 Corinthians 2.15 Paul says, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And it all depends on where the heart is. Because the heart is what reads the odor of Christ, the fragrance of Christ. And He either smells like death to you or He smells like life to you. He either smells like death to those around you as you talk about Jesus, or He smells like life. Which explains why some people, when you try and tell them about Jesus, get angry and and defensive and they just don't want to hear it. They're smelling death. They're smelling their own death. And it's frightening. But Jesus comes that we might have life and have it to the fullest. John chapter 10, verse 10. He comes to give us eternal life. His resurrection is about the resurrection of your life and my life. He busted open the chains of death that we would live forever with Him. Judas smelled death and waste, and so his life was a tragic waste. Mary smelled life, and to her it was worth everything. What about you? Simon was a used-to-be. Are you a used-to-be? Mary had a fragrant legacy. Will you? A life that's fruitful for the Lord because you just can't think of doing anything but giving everything to Him? 
or a life of infamy like Judas, who smelled death and chose the path of betrayal? Who are you in the story? Let's pray about this. Father, I pray, Lord, for conviction of our hearts this morning. Not that we would be guilty and burdened, Father, but that we would hear the truth. And Jesus, as you said, the truth would make us free. You are the truth, Lord Jesus. And it's you we want to know. And we do love you. It's almost comical, Lord, for me to even pray that you would help us learn how to love extravagantly when we recognize who you are and what you've done and what a wonder it is. How could any of us be so selfish? And I, I'm among the worst, Father. Forgive me. Forgive me my selfishness, my self-centeredness, my self-concern. And God, I pray over this fellowship that you will release us from ourselves that we will just be extravagant lovers of you. So extravagant that the smell of the perfume will fill not only the barn, not only this property, but will fill this region. That the reality that Jesus is here will attract people from all over the place to know you, Lord Jesus, and to love you and to join us in the extravagant life. And we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this morning. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.